Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do rejoice and we do celebrate you today. We gather together to honor you. We gather together to to uh, form this puzzle together to to see your body reassembled in this place for the purpose of worshiping, honoring, and hearing your voice. And we pray now that as we open up the Word of God, that the God of the Word would speak to our hearts and that you would reveal to each one of us that which you are working in us even now. And I pray that you'd fill my mouth with words that come from the throne of God and that the words that I speak would be yours and not mine. And I pray that every one of us would have hearing ears to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for this today. In the name of Jesus, and everyone said, Amen. Well, Kim pointed out that the title today is like my mind. It's blank. Oh, there it is. Oh, I wasn't hinting, William. Oh, and then it went away. Look at there. Gazing while running. Um, uh, and so I was meditating on here we are. One Sunday removed from Easter or Resurrection Sunday. And it occurred to me that after celebrating Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, what shall be our response? It's not enough just to feel bad that Jesus died for you. It's not enough just, it's not even enough just to be grateful. I mean, you need, you gotta be grateful. But what is going, what is our response? And then even, even uh, further, and we'll answer this later on, is how shall we run this race? Um, numerous times in the scripture, and we'll, a couple, we'll, we'll look at a couple today, but numerous times in the scripture, the Christian life is described as running a race. Some of that is due to the fact that the apostle Paul was a sports enthusiast. Now, they didn't have the NFL in those days. Um, but they did have wrestling and racing, running, and the games. And throughout Paul's writings, he repeatedly uses these games and these contests as metaphors for the Christian life. And running the race is one of them that he uses quite frequently. We don't know that Paul wrote Hebrews. Some people believe he did. Some people believe he didn't. Some people like me don't care. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's all that matters to me. To have an appropriate response to his sacrifice and victory, we must get beyond ourselves to find the wherewithal to finish the race, to run the race, to finish the race. We want to be like the Apostle Paul. He said, I, I've won I've won the victory. I've finished the race. And one day, all of us will finish our race. I, I hope that's not anytime soon for any of you. And I certainly hope it's not within the next few minutes. <laughs> I've known of several ministers who dropped dead in the pulpit. I'm not planning on that, by the way. But we need to be able to grasp who we are and who he is to finish this race. And the writer of Hebrews, whomever he may be, while encouraging and admonishing some weary travelers, 
at the same time offers instruction and hope to us. Now, the, the letter of Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who were suffering severe persecution and trials and trauma. And they were actually asking the question, were we not better off in Judaism <laughs> instead of this Christianity thing? And they were really wavering in their faith. And the 13 chapters of Hebrews were written for the, for the purpose of encouraging these people. And this is why it starts off so uh, emphatically comparing Moses to Jesus or Jesus to Moses and obviously stating that Jesus is far superior to Moses because obviously the Jewish people saw Moses as the pinnacle and the prophet in their world. And he was reminding these people that Moses was a great guy, but Jesus is superior to Moses. And so this is why that book starts that way. Well, we get to the 11th chapter. And in a moment, we're going to turn to uh, chapter 11 and start reading from verse 37. When we get to the 11th chapter, uh, we see what some call the heroes of faith. And uh, we see these people that are uh, listed for their faith in God. And he, he's, he's encouraging these people. And again, he's encouraging us. How many of you understand... <laughs> If you haven't, then you're like two years old. How many of you understand that the Christian life can be a challenge? Yeah. If if I do not communicate, let me back up and say it another way. If I communicate to you that the Christian life is just everything is great, you know, you come to Jesus, the world will change, and, and you everything will go great, and uh, the devil will leave you alone. I would be doing you a disservice. So I don't plan on doing that. I don't want to overemphasize the fact that the Christian life can be a challenge because we have resources to get us through. And we're going to talk about some of those resources today. Hebrews 11, uh, if you would stand with me, I'm just going to skim through some... some uh, uh, Verses here, and then we'll start reading in verse 37. But you just see here, by faith, uh, Noah, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Sarah, by faith, Isaac, by faith, Rahab the harlot. That's something. Uh, and then it, it just goes on to, it talks about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the things that they accomplished. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured. Now, you, here's what I want you to understand. Sometimes people are raised from the dead. Sometimes they're tortured. You say, well, why? You, when you get to heaven, you ask God. Not accepting. Anyway, verse 37, we'll start reading. And this they, the they there is the they, all the people before in chapter 11. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, were tempted. Now, your Bible might not have those words in there. Were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. I love this statement. Of whom the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, 
did not receive the promise. They didn't re- they didn't see what they were after. Late earlier, he says they were looking for a better country, one not made with human hands. Verse forty, and God, having provided something better for us, that they, same they, should not be made perfect apart from us. The word "they're perfect" is complete. In other words, the heavenly the the, the cloud of witnesses we'll read about in a moment are depending on you and me. We're connected with those in heaven, and we're finishing the race. Verse 1, therefore we also, since we are surrounded... I'm not going to preach through this whole thing, so don't worry if you need to sit down. Uh, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which... Oh, by the way, I'm reading from the New King James. And the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, let's say those three words together. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, that's capital H, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And these people were, you have not yet resisted the bloodshed striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord or the discipline, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord, the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. And that, by the way, that's non-gender specific. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are a or chaste or without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, God, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Verse 11. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You can be seated. The fact is. I could have kept on reading all the way to the end of the chapter, but I thought we wanted to focus, really going to focus most of our time on verses 1 and 2. But we're also going to deal with some of the others. Faith. In verse 6 of chapter 11, he says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to believe. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And we must believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Sometimes we think faith is something we just conjure up. You know, if we strain enough, we'll come up with enough faith. And 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 that's a, that's a, uh, unfortunate that we would have that idea. Um, faith, as the Bible describes it, is basically the simple way of saying it is it's a firm con- conviction about something or about somebody. 
is not just a conviction, but a firm conviction, something that is immovable. And, of course, all of chapter 11 describes these people who had a firm conviction in God. I mean, how else could you allow yourself to be tortured and sawn in two, destitute, except that you had a firm conviction in your God? Romans 12, 3 tells us that God has assigned to each person a measure of faith. Where do we get faith? Same way we get grace. The same way we get salvation from God Almighty. And the apostles told Jesus at one point, they said, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And so there's something there about increasing their faith. And then in Mark, Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. Just about every Bible commentator and translator that I've ever read agrees that the tense of all, I'm not getting into it, but really that's a better to be translated, have the faith of God. And someone describes it this way, make use of that faith which has God for its author. So you might come up with a faith that's not a real faith. But if the faith that you're exercising has God as its author, then that's the faith that will get you down the road and enable you to run the race, which is what we want to talk about now, run the race. Paul writes in Corinthians, do you not know that in a race, all runners run, hopefully. Carla just ran, where'd Carla go? Nursery. Nursery. She just ran in the FCA run that, that we help sponsor every year. We had 700 and something runners this year. All the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Now, our race is a little different. We all receive the prize, but here's the key. No one can receive the prize on your behalf. I can't live my Christian life and finish my Christian life and you get credit for it. (laughs) If you find a way about that, would you let me know? But it doesn't work that way. We're all running the race called life so that you may obtain it. Verse 1 says we're surrounded by a great uh, cloud of witnesses, which is all these saints. It's interesting, and this is sort of a aside that when Jesus was resurrected, we know that the saints came up out of their graves and walk, they were seen walking the streets of Jerusalem, the saints who had died. We also know that when Jesus ascended, somehow they disappeared, but we also know that there was a cloud that went up with Jesus. And then we, here we have a great cloud of witnesses. He says, Therefore, let us, therefore, because we see these saints who've gone on before, therefore, you want to do one of the therefore, you find out what it's, therefore, let us lay aside every weight. It's funny how the writer jumps right into that. He's talking, remember who he's talking to, but you know who else he's talking to? You and me. Let us lay aside every weight. This version says, which, which so easily ensnares us, every weight that easily entangles us, everything that would stop us or hinder us. Now, everybody under the sound of my voice, you have something 
you have at least one thing that is, for lack of a better description, is your kryptonite. <laughs> you know, like I like cookies. Now, we're talking about something more serious than cookies, although sometimes cookies can be very serious. Uh, which reminds me, I need to stop by that table on the way out. All of us have something we struggle with. Now, you know, not ever, it's not alcohol with everybody. It's not pornography with everybody. It's not, you know, it's, and, and not everybody has an addiction. But you know good and well there's something that you have to watch. You have a proclivity towards going in that direction, and you have to watch that you guard yourself, that you don't slip into that. And it's the thing that would, that hinders you. It's the thing that you get entangled in. The imagery there is of a, of a competitor thwarting a runner in every direction. You've seen races, whether they be bicycles or on foot. You've seen them when one, one competitor would reach over and shove the other one or do something illegal and dirty. That's the imagery the writer is using here. That our competitor, his name is Satan, would try to thwart you in your run. Another part of this imagery of the wording that he uses is that that you are surrounded by them. And we know how intimidating it is if you can be surrounded by your competitors or by your enemies. I'm not here today to spend most of my time on the the, uh, effects of sin. I'm not afraid to preach about sin. Y'all know I just three weeks ago talked about God's wrath. I'm not afraid to deal with it because it's such an important subject. What I want us to think about today, though, is whatever, what is that one sin that it so easily entangles us, that so easily hinders us? I don't know. It could be, you know what. Here's some examples Paul gives us. Now you yourselves are to put off, now the imagery there is taking a coat of clothing off, Put off these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. No, we don't want to read that one, do we? Filthy. I was in high school basketball. I had a little bit of a blue mouth, and and I had committed to Christ, but I, my, he hadn't saved my mouth yet. <laughs> and my best friend said, man, you need to stop all that. I said, well, you know, I hadn't read anywhere in the Bible. It says he about cussing. I said, you, you help me out with that. So the next day he came to basketball practice with Colossians 3.8. Okay. So I stopped. He said, filthy language out of your mouth and do not lie to one another. Now, these are just a few examples. I probably didn't hit yours. There's gossiping. I mean, there's all kind of. But what, what is it? And what the writer is saying to us is, don't beat yourself up over it. Just don't, just lay it aside. And how are you going to do that? Lord, help me. You don't have the ability to quit whatever it is that you're, that's bothering you. But you do have the ability to say, Lord, help me with this thing. Give me the ability to lay it aside. Choose to lay it aside. Make good decisions. If you have a problem with alcohol, don't go to the bar. I mean, you know, I'm, well, I ain't going to say it. My wife's here. She says, I can't say it anymore. You have to ask me afterwards. 
But whatever it is, you know, it, okay, you know. You know how to avoid whatever that is. Because you want to run the race without entanglement. You want to run the race without dragging that ball behind you. You, you, hmm. And he says, run the race with endurance. You can't run the race with endurance if you're dragging something around, if you're wrestling with something all the time. And I'm not talking about achieving perfection. I'm not talking about being completely free from things. I'm talking about set that thing aside and don't let it weight us down. When it raises its ugly head, what's that game called when you whack? Whack Whack-a-mole. You whack-a-mole that thing. Running with endurance is to run with constancy. It's to run bearing up under the circumstances. It's, and the word there really means to remain under. Now, I want to submit to you that God is not always going to deliver you out of your difficult circumstance. As a matter of fact, except for things like healing and things like that. He rarely delivers you out of your adverse circumstances. He tells you to remain under and run the race set before us. And by the way, it's someone else does the setting of the race, not us. We're running the race. How are we running this race in view of Easter? Well, we're running this race by looking unto Jesus. It's interesting that the writer addresses verse one and then gets to the, to the, the, the main point of what he wants to say, looking unto Jesus, looking. Some of your versions that you're holding uh, will say, fix your gaze, which is where my title came from, gazing while running. By the way, you need to continue gazing the whole time you're running. But as I'll point out here in a moment, be gazing at ahead and not other directions. Looking, it's interesting, the word there for looking unto Jesus is a word that means to turn the eyes away from other things and fix them on something. It's not just that I look at Jesus, but it's that I, I purposely make a choice, make a decision that I'm going to take my eyes off of that thing that so easily entangles me, and I'm going to take my vision, and I'm going to purposely, intentionally place that vision on the Lord Jesus. Whether you have an image of him on the cross, whether you have an image of him standing outside the tomb, alive, looking unto Jesus to see away from. Someone has said it means looking away from all distractions in order to fix one's gaze on one object, and in this case, one person. What are you gazing at? You say, I'm looking at you. Well, I guess what I'm talking about. If you're gazing at me, you got a problem. My wife told me this morning I was pretty. I told her to clean her contacts. No, I didn't say that, but I should have. She's pretty, for sure. Looking away. Talking about distractions. Looking away. 
from distractions, looking away from the thing that would hinder us, looking away from that thing, but not just looking away from that. Now let's turn our gaze upon the Lord Jesus. Here's an important thing I learned in, in uh, school. You know, we ran races all the time. When I was a kid, um, no, I, I didn't know Abraham Lincoln. My kids asked me that. But when I was a kid, we did a thing called the President's Physical Fitness Test. I'm not sure we could have that today. I'll just leave that alone. But <laughs> you ran races. You, if those of you that don't familiar with you, you ran different races, 600-yard six, six, run and walk, the 50-yard dash, chin-ups, pull-ups. You did all of this stuff every year at school. And uh, now they have competitions on, with your thumbs. You know. But one of the things we learned when we were running these races was this. When you're running, don't look at the other contestants. If you're running, have you ever watched a football player? I love it when this happens to them. They're running to the end zone. Boy, they've got a touchdown. And they turn around and look. You see who's who's chasing them. And one or two things happen or both. One Usually what happens is they get caught. Because when you turn and look, you slow down. And the other thing that happens to those show-offs is they fumble the football and they lose it in the end zone anyway. When you're running a race, you don't look at the other competitors. You look at the goal. The goal is the Lord Jesus. Who is, the Bible says, in this version, the author and the finisher of our faith. Author's not a bad term, but the real word there is he's the originator of faith. Hebrews 2.10 calls him the captain or the chief leader of our faith. But there's an interesting thing here. A lot of the versions there will say he is the author and the finisher of our faith. The New American Standard Bible, the Tree of Life version, a few others, leave out the word our, O-U-R. Because it's not in the best manuscripts. As a matter of fact, if you have a King James or a New King James Bible, that word hour will be in italics, indicating that it wasn't in the original manuscript that someone put it there, they thought, to make it make more sense. Albert Barnes is a great commentator. Well, he was. He's in heaven and been in heaven many years. But he said this about that. The word hour is not in the original here, and it obscures the sense. The meaning is... He, Jesus, is the first and the last as an example of faith or of confidence in God. So you see, it should read, he is the author and finisher of faith, not our faith. Occupying in this, as in all other things, the preeminence and being the most complete model that can be placed before us. The apostle this is interesting, had not enumerated him among those who had been distinguished for their faith. You ever thought about Jesus is not included in Hebrews 11? But he now refers to him as above them all, as the case that deserves to stand by itself. 
Here is the author of faith, the originator of faith. The word in the Greek means the first one. He led the way. You say, would Jesus have to have faith? Not to, you know, we struggle with faith. We have to beat off other things and try to have faith in God. By the way, this teaches us this lesson. The more you get to know God, the easier it is to have faith in him. The easier it is to trust him, which is why I encourage you to read the scripture, study the scripture. Because if you want to find out who God is, read his words. And the more you get to know who he is, and the more you get to know his character, the more you trust him, and the more faith you have in him. Now, who would have more faith in God the Father than God the Son? Who would know more about God the Father than God the Son? And since God the Son knew the Father way, Andy Griffith would say, I've been Andy Griffith all weekend. If, if Andy Griffith would say, way yonder, more than we could then he he obviously exercised faith in God. What greater demonstration of faith in the Father than that of the Son? He said, I, I don't I don't really like what's going on here, even when he was on the earth. I don't I don't I don't like the formula here. But nevertheless, your will be done. What kind of that's faith. That's trust in the Father. It says he's the author and the finisher. He's the completer of our faith. He will complete your faith. And one day you'll complete your race with a complete faith. For the joy set before him. We run a race set before us, but for the joy set before him, he did what? He endured the cross. He endured the cross. Our gaze, as we gaze upon Jesus, is in the context of the cross of Christ. It's in the context of what he chose to do and what he did with his work on the cross. It says that he endured. He endured the cross. And again, some more, some more ideas about endurance. To hold one's ground in conflict. To bear up under adversity. That's to endure. It's not, we're not talking about a passive resignation here, but we're talking about an active, energetic resistance to defeat that allows us to have calm and brave endurance. And I want to point this out, that in the midst of challenge, in the midst of our cross, in the midst of difficult circumstances, the idea is not to be removed from the circumstances. The idea is to not succumb to the defeat that is trying to get on us in the circumstances. It's, it's like I've said, it, it's one thing for you to be in the storm, but it's another thing for you to allow the storm to get in you. You don't have to own the defeat that's being attempted on your life. You can endure, you can hold up, you can bear up, you can still suffer the consequences or suffer the circumstances. I mean, my goodness, how bad can it get? As we speak, my wife and I have no air conditioning. You're talking about a first world problem. We hope to get that fixed tomorrow. But I could be trying to move in with some of y'all. 
And you're, you're resisting the defeat. Resist whatever your circumstances, when they're squeezing you, whatever they're pushing you to do in the flesh, resist it. That's endurance. It's not being removed from the squeezing. It's just not giving in to the defeat. I hope that. He said he endured the cross, despising the shame. We dealt with this last week. And he was despising the shame or disesteeming the shame. It just means to think little or nothing of something. He saw the shame. He recognized the shame. He bore the shame, but he disregarded it for our, for our benefit on our behalf. And then it says he sat down. You know why he sat down? He was finished. He sat down so you could run. You, if he did not sit down, you and I could not run the race. So he sat down and said, okay, I'm done. Now you run. And we're running. The writer says, consider him. Consider him who endured hostility from sinners. We saw, I mean, you know, you can just watch the Passion of the Christ. You can watch any of the Jesus movies. And you see the the hostility that he suffered. The scripture says, he endured that hostility lest you be weary or discouraged. I think I like the ESV better here. It says, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You know what he's saying there? He's not saying that he's going, because he suffered, you won't have to. Remember the disciple said, can we sit at your right hand? He said, well, you're going to have to suffer. Well, maybe we need to reconsider this thing. No, what he's saying is, because he endured the hostility from sinners, and we, we, if you're gazing on him, if you're gazing at the Lord Jesus, and you see that he endured the hostility, then it gives you the confidence and you know that through the Holy Spirit, you're going to be able to endure your hostility. It may, it may not be coming from people, but it may be coming from circumstances. He says, you have not resisted to bloodshed. No, we haven't. You you hadn't gone through what he's gone through. But you have the ability. And then he gets into this interesting section in verse 5 and 6 and he, where he talks about guiding us along the race route with a fatherly hand. Why is that necessary? Because we're human beings, because we live in the flesh. It's, it talks about the... T- Here's some types of guidance that he talks about. Chastening or discipline. Chastening or discipline. Which uh, sometimes we give chastening a bad rap. It just really means to instruct or to train up. It's, it's where we get our word train up as a child. It's a tutorage. It's, it's a discipline. It's, a, it's aiming in the right direction. It's taking that arrow out of the quiver and making sure it's on target and discipline and and it's not always punishment. We always think of chastening as punishment. It can be, but it's not always a punishment thing. It's more of a leading and directing. And then he said rebuked. Chastening and then another kind of guidance is rebuking or reproving someone. And that means, all that really means is to expose. For the Holy Spirit to say to you, 
No, you shouldn't be doing that. No, you shouldn't be going there. That's just reproof. And we in the flesh want to resist that. So, well, who, who are you? What, you, who are you? what are you talking about? And, of course, there is the thing of punishment, and that just means dealing with consequences. They call it scourging. In, the new t- in those times, it was flogging. I heard a great story. I thought I'd heard it before, but I reminded of it that Opie went up to bed and called down to his daddy, Daddy, could you bring me up a cup of water? And Andy said, Opie, you go to sleep, and I don't want to hear from you again. So a few minutes later, Opie yelled down, Daddy, Daddy, I need some. I need a cup of water. And Andy went to the bottom of the stairs and said, Opie, I've told you, go to sleep. You don't need any water. A little while, Opie yelled down again, but Daddy, I need a cup of water. And Andy went to the stairs. He said, Opie, if you don't go to sleep and I have to come up there, you're going to get a spanking. A little while later, Opie yelled, Daddy. Andy went over to the stairs and Opie said, when you come up here to spank me, could you bring a cup of water with you? <laughs> now, you may not believe in spanking your kids. I sometimes wish my parents hadn't. No, I don't. I thank God for every spanking I got. My four boys, I hope they do too. The ones they got, not the ones I got. By the way, uh, I know some people get upset about this, but I don't really care. We're talking talking about sensible discipline, not beating. Whatever that, however that, by the way, we've learned over the years that that corporal punishment doesn't work with every child. Doesn't work with every child. We know that. But some kind, some kind of consequences need to be dealt with, whatever that may be. Now, if you can, if you're one of those parents who count, please don't count. One, two. You know what that tells a child? They can disobey for two counts. Well, I just made somebody mad. Again, I don't really care. One, you can disobey. One, okay. Two, three. Okay, now I gotta quit disobeying. No, my kids didn't get, they got one, you're done. (laughs) What she just said, delayed obedience is disobedience. And, uh, you talk to my sons and they'll tell you, they probably, anyway, you'll probably feel sorry for them if you listen to me long enough. (laughs) But there is that element that God punishes us sometimes. Why? Well, look at verse 7. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons and daughters. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? For But if you are without discipline or chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate 
And your King James has another word there. We don't like to use it. We had human fathers who corrected us. And we paid them respect. For they indeed for a few days chastened us. As seemed best to them, but he for our profit. No chastening seems joyful. This version says painful, uncomfortable. What is all this about? It's about our fixing our gaze on Jesus. And then him and God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, adjusting us as we run the race. Sometimes you run the race, you get off the trail. Now, some people get off the trail because they're cheating. But I'm talking about getting off the trail just because you stumble or just because you've lost your vision, you've lost your goal. And when you've lost your, your fix on the Lord Jesus, it's because he loves you and he cares about you that he will bring your vision back. How many of you know that when life gets really difficult, is when you pray the best. Is when you draw close to God the most. So that you now have taken that gaze off of the trail, off of the, the things that are distracting you, and you have fixed that gaze back on the Lord Jesus. You have viewed him, not just hanging on the cross, but you have viewed him enduring the process. You have viewed him succumbing and being obedient to the Father. I mean, the list goes on. But as human beings, we have to be disciplined. But thank God. Thank God that he loves you enough to punish you. And this is our goal. Every athlete exercises self-control. In all things. And they do it to receive a perishable wreath. Once again, the games. He's talking about the games. But we, an imperishable. Our our prize is not something that we can put on a shelf. It's something that we can live in for eternity. So I do not run aimlessly. I don't just run all over the place. Again, when we're running aimlessly, this is when God has to discipline us. And correct us and sometimes punish us to get us back on the track, back on the trail. A God who doesn't love you would let you run aimlessly. He says sometimes, he says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box. Here's another sporting metaphor. I do not box as one beating the air. Just going in exercises of futility. But I discipline my body. And keep it under control. Lest, in his case, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. It's about running the race. It's about discipline. It's about not allowing our flesh and our uh, tendencies to govern and dictate the path. But it's about... Fixing our gaze on him, on the Lord Jesus, looking unto him who is the originator of faith and allowing that faith to become our faith. And then we run the race 
and we finish the race with victory. And we don't look back and say, well, I stepped off the trail there and I stepped off the trail. We don't do that. We just finish the race. And thank God that when we do run aimlessly, that when we do deviate from the path, the race that he has set before us, that he loves us enough to discipline us and correct us and punish us back onto the path. And then we don't finish disqualified. Can you say amen? Amen. Stand with me.